You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 31st of October 2023 on Monaco Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up... Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, to surrender to terrorism, to surrender to barbarism. That will not happen. We'll get the latest from Israel and Gaza. The Nordic Council is meeting in Oslo this week. Our correspondent will tell us more. The US and South Korea have begun joint air drills and Pyongyang is not happy. We'll get a roundup of news from the Asia-Pacific region, have a flick through the papers and... And it's special to live in the Arctic because we know how to do it. In Brussels, the EU, they don't know. We'll hear from the mayor of Tromso in the Arctic. And finally, we'll be in Lisbon to celebrate a new municipal art project. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissed calls for him to resign over security failures in the October the 7th Hamas attack and ruled out a ceasefire with the militant group as the army intensifies ground operations in Gaza. We'll have more on that story in just a moment. Venezuela's Supreme Justice Tribunal has suspended the results of an opposition presidential primary that took place this month, despite an electoral deal between the government and the opposition that allows each side to choose its candidate. And Indonesia's counter-terrorism unit has arrested 59 suspected militants, including some loyalists of an Islamic State-inspired group suspected of planning to disrupt an upcoming election. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, let's get more on our top story. I'm joined from Jerusalem by Shana Lowe, who's a communication advisor at the Norwegian Refugee Council, and by Nick Gowing, Distinguished Fellow at Royal United Services Institute and former international presenter at BBC World News. Nick, if we could start with you, what has happened overnight? Uh, well, it's a continuation, essentially, of what uh, the Israelis have said they were doing, which is to have measured and powerful steps. Um, and it's a continuation of the artillery barrages, the uh, airstrikes and so on. But I think you, you have to really begin to ask the question very seriously about how much Hamas was expecting all of this and therefore is well prepared for all of this. It might have taken a few days. It might have taken a few weeks. But um, essentially, the, the Israelis have been caught on the hop. They weren't prepared for uh, for this scale of what is coming uh, and also they hadn't trained and they hadn't prepared um, militarily for what is now happening and I think um, even though we can we can talk about what's happened overnight with Netanyahu saying um, that uh, this is going to be uh, a continuation of a very determined operation that that doesn't mean to say that the Israelis are doing well the uh, Hamas know exactly what happens in uh, uh, and where in uh, Gaza and uh, they run the place uh, still. And that is a very formidable weapon. And you, we are talking about house to house, building to building. And when you look at the devastation there, it's a bit like the enormous Turkish earthquake earlier this year. The devastation and the humanitarian pressures are enormous with sewage, with um 
water with the ability just to keep going. And I think put all that together, it's not just about whether it's a, a, a measured and powerful series of steps from the Israeli military. It's also about the massive civilian challenge that they're facing at the moment. Absolutely. And Shana, I wonder if you could tell us more about that, the humanitarian situation on the ground in Gaza. Yeah, of course. We have 54 staff on the ground in Gaza who were in constant contact with. um, And what they are reporting to us is just that the situation day by day is getting more and more difficult. Every morning I check in with my colleagues and they tell me that the previous night was the worst night of their lives. Um, There's shortages of food, water, clean water, Uh, medicines, hospitals are on the verge of collapse. And while we've seen this trickle of aid come in uh, over the last 10 days or so, it's nowhere near what's needed. Um, I think there have been about 130 trucks maybe that have come in 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 seven days or eight days, nine days. Um, But it's nowhere near the 100 trucks per day that's needed to meet just basic humanitarian needs. You also have people living in overcrowded shelters. Many people are on the streets. Gaza has never had a homelessness issue, but now there just isn't enough shelter for all of the people who are internally displaced. And on top of that, even the people who have moved to the South seeking shelter are still facing airstrikes, bombardments, um, and 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 fear are fearing for their lives. The death toll is just unimaginable at over eight thousand at over eight thousand Palestinians. Mm. And of course, Nick, in the midst of this, we still have Israeli hostages. What more do we know about them? Well, obviously, we know that um, uh, a a young female uh, soldier was released yesterday. Uh, the circumstances are not clear. But I think more problematic is that long, long table with 225 seats outside the defense ministry and the haunting political pressure now on Netanyahu, who clearly is not getting on well with his military leaders. Um, The expectation that he will get those hostages back, I think the chuck. The chances of that are quite slim, not least because you've got to find them, first of all. But that political message being sent by those empty Shabbat uh, chairs is extraordinary. And already the signs are very strong. Uh, there's a major general um, in the a former major general um, in the in the IDF quoted this morning in The Times saying that um, and I don't know where, whether this data is absolutely spot on, but he says 80 percent of the public in Israel want Netanyahu to go. Now, to be in the middle of a war and the prime minister being under pressure to go um, is really not a good position to be in because it shows uh, a fraying of leadership and um, and self-confidence right at the top. Absolutely. Uh, Shana, back to, to well, excuse me, what's going on in Gaza. We know that there was a raid on an aid centre by desperate people there over the weekend. What are the challenges for your colleagues of, of being an aid worker as, as social order really begins to collapse? Well, You know, for our staff, we've largely, our operations have basically been suspended in Gaza since uh, October 7th, simply because it's not safe for our staff to go out and move. And they need to spend most of their time just making sure that they and their families are okay and that basic necessities are provided for. But what we're seeing, and and the UN for, for days had been talking about how they had these warehouses in Gaza, but they were inaccessible because it simply wasn't safe for their staff to reach them. And and so this is why we need a ceasefire or at the very least a humanitarian pause so that humanitarians can go and safely distribute aid. 
It's one thing um, to to have the supplies in Gaza, either they're already pre-positioned or, or coming in through Rafah, but it's another thing for humanitarians to be able to, to um, distribute them. And I think what we saw over the weekend with Palestinians going and, and taking uh, supplies from, from UN warehouses, it just shows the level of desperation, the level of panic, the level of chaos that Palestinians in Gaza are feeling um, when when there's no sign of relief coming in, they're they're being forced to take matters into their own hands when when they feel that this is a matter of survival. And Nick, of course, we know that there's a huge public health crisis. Israel's ordered the evacuation of hospitals in Gaza. Is that because the IDF feels that these buildings might be where some of the Hamas command centers are located? Well, they claim it's not might. It it, it is where the command centers are. And they've certainly uh, produced a, a graphic. Uh, they said they weren't prepared to uh, show the the uh, video of uh, what they've got uh, underneath one of the main hospitals saying this is a command center. And Hamas have done that specifically, including uh, storing up to half a million liters of fuel as well. So um, the Israelis are very specific about what they say, and they have ordered the evacuation uh, of that hospital. But can I just add something else, if I may, Georgina? You know, I was in Saudi Arabia last week, um, and I think we have to look at this more broadly about how delicately balanced this is at the moment between the uncertainty of what Hezbollah are going to do in Lebanon and on the northern border uh, and also the relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia. It's a very complex matrix that I'm referring to here. But this could be controlled at the moment. There is a, a, a moment coming up where it'll be uncontrollable. And of course, the Israeli defense forces will be extraordinarily um, stretched if they have to open another front in the north. They've called up 360,000 reservists, but um, that doesn't mean to say that they've got enough military hardware and military capability to actually see off a second, uh, a second assault from the north. It is incredibly delicately balanced at the moment, and I think it's noteworthy that Lord Peter Ricketts, former National Security Advisor, and Sir John Soares, the former head of MI6, have both um, penned articles in which they say you cannot achieve what Netanyahu says he wants to achieve um, by military action alone. We've seen that in Afghanistan. We've seen that in Iraq. It's militarily and politically unsustainable, even if that's what you want to do at the early stages of anger. Mm. Uh, how could it be controlled at the moment? I mean, what are they suggesting? What is the alternative? Well, uh, I, there's a lot of diplomacy going on. But I was very struck when I was in Saudi Arabia. The um, Iranian foreign minister actually met the Saudi foreign minister in Jeddah. Now, uh, a, a few months ago, Iran and Saudi Arabia were still at war. Now, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the uh, effective leader, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, uh, and they were about to build a new relationship with, with Israel about respecting uh, diplomatic relations, building diplomatic relations. All that's now on the back burner, obviously. But there's a lot of influence being being uh, exerted among different f- factions and different power plays uh, about uh, trying to re- re- um, restrain those who have the military capability, particularly Hezbollah, supplied by Iran, uh, to... Uh, to stop them or to restrain them coming in from Lebanon. And so you've got a lot of activity. And I remember, I said this actually when I last spoke to you, that the is the Egyptians are uh, desperately paranoid about the number of refugees which may be threatening their country. They've already got 7 million refugees from different uh, from other, uh, other conflicts around the region. And what we're talking about here is the ability now to destabilize much more 
than just Gaza. 100,000 Israelis have moved from their homes in the north of the country, you know, and this is going to affect the Israeli economy as well. So much, there's a, there's a whole sort of falling uh, a, a, a cascade of issues which are now becoming really unraveled, quite apart from the horror which we've been hearing about of the uh, humanitarian side in Gaza. Nick Gowing, thank you very much indeed. Thank you too to Shana Lowe. This is The Globalist. It's 12 minutes past 8 in Oslo, 7.12 here in London. The Nordic Council, made up of 87 members of the national parliaments of Finland, Iceland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, the Faroe Islands, Greenland and Ireland, are meeting for the 75th annual session. The event began yesterday and will continue until the 2nd of November. The Nordic Council overall mirrors the actual political composition of the Nordic parliaments, meaning that 54% of participants are women. Just 28 million people live in the Nordic region, but it is the 12th largest economy in the world. Security is a top theme this year, and NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg will address the Assembly today. Well, I'm joined now by Monocle's Oslo correspondent, Lars Bavanga. Lars, many thanks for coming on the show. How much actual power does the Nordic Council hold? Can it make demands of member states? It cannot make any formal demands, but it is a very important meeting ground. Now, it was formed back in 1952 before uh, any of the Nordic countries became EU members. And as such, was a very important sort of forerunner, if you like, in terms of fostering cooperation between the the, uh, Nordic countries. And they established a a common Nordic labour market already in 1954 and a passport union in 58, long before... Uh, the Schengen Agreement, of course, of passport-free travel. Uh, Today, the Nordic Council is uh, relevant uh, still in terms of Nordic cooperation, removing border obstacles, having uh, the Nordic region as a very big economy, as you mentioned, the 12th largest in the world. But also, it does have a very strong voice on the global global, economy. stage, if you like, more or stronger, well, they, they would sound stronger than the individual Nordic countries would do. And now, especially, if, of course, when uh, it looks like all of the Nordic countries for the first time will be NATO members before long, uh, as long as Hungary allows Sweden to join finally. Mm. What was discussed at, at the conference yesterday? I mean, we know that they'll be talking about the best way to talk, turn that Nordic vision into reality. But what is that vision? The vision for uh, the Nordic countries now is to become the most integrated region in the world and the greenest. Now, on the latter, uh, there has been quite a lot of discussion uh, already uh, about how to... well, speed up the the green transition. Uh, They've uh, already admitted uh, that this is lagging behind somewhat. Uh, And of course, with greater cooperation between all the five nation states and the three autonomous areas, the green transition might go faster than it would have been if they were all individually working. Um, And and the the second part of the vision to be the most integrated, well, it has been a very integrated uh, region. As I mentioned, the Passport Union came into force already in 1954. That took a hit uh, the first time during the refugee crisis in 2015 when Sweden and Denmark reintroduced border control. Of course, 
everything closed down again during the pandemic. This is now gradually reopening so that they have to sort of patch up the setbacks of those two events to become even more integrated. Um, security is another very important theme, of course. The, the, the Nordics have a, a very long border with Russia, both uh, uh, along the, the Finnish border and, and in Norway as well. So it, it, it is very sort of keenly felt that uh, the Nordics are very close geographically to Russia. And of course, we've got the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, former Norwegian Prime Minister, addressing the session today. And as we mentioned, I mean, Norway, Iceland and Denmark were among the founding members of NATO. That was in the aftermath of World War II. Uh, Finland and Sweden uh, turned to non-alignment during the Cold War, but they're now, as you say, in the process of joining subject to Hungary. How might this change the discourse on security? And what do we expect to come out of the discussions on the security front with Jens Stoltenberg? Well, I think we will see a very uh, a, a joint Nordic region when it comes to security issues. There will be a, a lot of uh, agreement, I think, on the way forward. Uh, alignment with NATO, of course, now that all, all countries look set to become NATO members. And, uh, and also, interestingly, there is a proposition that will be um, discussed today to, to make the Nordic region officially a nuclear-free zone. Now, this has been debated for decades. As per today, there are no nuclear weapons in any of the Nordic countries. But as NATO members, this might become something that is demanded from the Nordic countries. Denmark solved it some years ago with the agreement with the, the United States to store nuclear capable weapons on Danish soil, but nuclear warheads just across the border in Germany. Uh, so we don't expect uh, anything to come out concrete of that discussion. And nobody expects the Nordic region to uh, to ad- adopt a proposition to become a nuclear-free zone. Mm. So I think it's more alignment with NATO and, and agreement on the way forward in terms of uh, Ukraine in particular. Can you tell us a little more about the makeup of the council and how we've seen the demographic and the, the political leanings change? Yes, well, the, traditionally, uh, the, the Nordic countries have been uh, social democracies uh, led by social dem- uh, well, various v- versions of the social democratic uh, parties. Uh, today, it's leaning uh, more and more to the right. We've had uh, government changes in, in Sweden most recently, but also in Finland, uh, where there are now uh, centre-right coalitions uh, uh, ruling. Um, the makeup, uh, gender-based makeup, as you mentioned in your introduction, is uh, mainly, main, well, not mainly, there's a majority of women representatives, doesn't really represent the makeup in the parliaments, the national parliaments at the moment. But these change, of course, with elections and, and by-elections. Uh, but all the Nordic countries have always been very focused on gender equality and they want this to be reflected in the representatives, the 87 members of the national parliaments who, who come to the session. The argument being that the more diverse, uh, the better, uh, and especially perhaps when uh, when uh, uh, conflict, armed conflict is, is being uh, discussed. Mm. Uh, and finally, Lars, culture is also a large part of this gathering. Can you tell us more about the awards that will be handed out in Oslo's Opera House tonight? Yes, indeed. It's going to be a big gala event, televised live on uh, Norwegian television. Uh, and uh, there are five prizes which, which will be honouring uh, the, the Nordic countries. um 
uh, cultural uh, output. So it's it in literature, music, film, and uh, innovative efforts in the field of environment, which uh, this year is focusing on the textile industry, which has, of course, its own challenges when it comes to sustainability. Uh, so this is this is another way of of uh, focusing on Nordic cooperation. Cultural cooperation has always been very important in this. That, uh, ever since the the, the uh, formation of the Nordic Council back in 1952. Lars, thank you very much indeed. That's Lars Bavanga there. Now, still to come on the programme, we'll join Monocle's Lillian Fawcett in Singapore with the latest stories from her region. Old friends restore their annual retreat, a flailing flagship policy from Thailand's new PM, and why international buyers are interested in Southeast Asia's favourite stinky fruit. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. I'm Georgina Godwin and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, We are talking AI at the top and this is a big article in The Times talking about Israel not attending or not being invited to attend a big summit on, on AI. Yes, quite an extraordinary splash in the Times this morning. And this is, of course, ahead of the AI Summit that Rishi Sunak will be hosting at Bletchley Park later in the week. And we don't have too many people flying in. Um, The UK has certainly issued invitations to world leaders. Not many have accepted. Not quite sure what we should uh, take that to mean in terms of a world reading of the UK right now, but I digress. Now, one leader who was invited was Israel's Benjamin Netanyahu. And according to this story in the Times, Georgina, uh, it reports that foreign office officials actually recommended to the government that Benjamin Netanyahu be disinvited in case he brought up the war in Gaza. And the idea or the fear was that this could overshadow the summit and this would be an unwelcome distraction. Now, this advice was intercepted by the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly and Michelle Donnellan, the science uh, minister who is also coordinating the AI summit. And cleverly, according to this report in the Times, rewrote it before this was sent on to Downing Street. So Netanyahu was not going to attend in person. The suggestion was that he might have appeared or will appear by remote link. Uh, But nevertheless, this is causing a bit of a storm within the government because, of course, the Tory party is very firmly on Israel's side. And depending who you ask within the Labour opposition, they're also on Israel's side, at least from the opposition leader's 
office. So um, some very strange advice there, and that's brought, of course, the civil service uh, back into the spotlight for attack by some of the usual suspects in the Conservative Party, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg being among them. Um, So uh, if that did happen as reported, that's a bit of an own goal, you would think, from the civil service, Mm. given government policy on that very wall. Uh, And we see as well, of course, the sacking of a parliamentary private secretary at the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. And that's because he uh, is is, uh, advocating for a ceasefire. Yes, this was a very swift move from Rishi Sunak. Paul Bristow is the gent in question, probably someone no one's really heard of. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, he did call for a ceasefire, becoming the first Tory MP to do so. And I suppose uh, Sunak, in very stark uh, contrast, acted swiftly here compared to, say, the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, who's really in a lot of trouble internally over uh, how divided his party is on this issue. Well, any division within Tory ranks is clearly not going to be accepted. And Sunak has made that clear um, quickly, uh, taking a junior ministerial job from Mr Bristow immediately after these comments were made. So there's a lot of p- politicking uh, going on there, but you also certainly can't question that the UK is standing on the side of Israel uh, in this war. Mm, but no Netanyahu, as you say, coming himself. Also no Joe Biden, no Emmanuel Macron, but we do get Elon Musk. Yes, this is quite a surprise, I think, because when you think AI, Elon Musk is not really the AI tech uh, guy or tech bro, you might say, that comes to mind. Now, um, X, formerly Twitter, which Elon bought... um, and uh, has since overseen a huge decline in its profitability and value, um, has actually forayed into AI. So he does have uh, an AI interest. And he's going to come to the AI Summit on Thursday. And this is the day where we expect most of of any leader who comes to attend that day. Um, And Elon Musk and Rishi Sunak, as advertised by the Downing Street X account last night, Georgina, will be hosting an in-conversation together immediately after this summit wraps up on Thursday at Bletchley Park. So we'll see what those two chaps have to say. But it's a rather interesting embrace of Elon Musk at a time when uh, disinformation has been a huge problem. I myself interviewed the the science minister, Michelle Donnellan, uh, last week and was asking her about this. And she said that actually, yes, we have been, we have hauled the social media companies in for a please explain about why so much uh, Hamas terrorist content is allowed to circle online on their platforms and and we're awaiting to see what their procedures are. And of course, the EU has gone much further using its Digital Services Act and Thierry Breton, the commissioner there responsible for this, has personally issued Elon Musk a letter saying you must remove this content or... or, um, be fine, you know, they face huge fines under their Digital Services Act, and Elon has basically come back and said, Well, point me to anything that you're talking about, and so continues the war of words. So, a really interesting embrace from the UK for Musk at a time when the tech companies are not necessarily flavour of the month and haven't been for quite some time. Mm. And of course, AI, one of the problems that it throws up is uh, fake videos and uh, fake sound bites and so on. Would that this were fake, it's not. Boris Johnson, <laughs> uh, we're now hearing all sorts of things that came out during COVID. Some really shocking things that, that, that the Prime Minister, the former Prime Minister and some of his senior officials were saying to each other on private WhatsApp messages. Look, where to begin? Uh, This is right across all the papers. 
us today and for very good reason. And this all stems from the inquiry that's underway that the UK government is conducting into its COVID response. And what emerged yesterday was some really staggering evidence uh, on a range of fronts. One, we have this remarkable quote from Boris Johnson, who is quoted as saying uh, in a handwritten note made by his private secretary for public services, why are we destroying the economy for people who will die anyway soon? And this was said before the very first COVID lockdown. Now, Of course, we lived all through this, and who really wants to reopen those terrible years, Georgina? But it is, of course, necessary, and it's something that should be done absolutely in every jurisdiction. But what we see emerge is a huge, uh, I guess, um, careering between policy responses. And this frustrated Sir Patrick Vallance, the chief scientific advisor, uh, and his own notes and a diary that he kept during the time actually goes on to show this remarkable incident where he says that the Prime Minister's own press secretaries, now these are political advisors, not civil servants, uh, Lee Kane and James Slack, were trying to get him to appear alongside Dominic Cummings at that very infamous press conference where he was forced to defend, and some might say very badly, his own lockdown breaches when he drove to Barnard Castle, apparently using quote marks here to test his eyesight. Now, Valance writes in his diary that this was clearly a breach and he twice rejected um, appeals for him to appear at a press conference to defend this behaviour and ultimately had to go in and and say to the PM, look, this is not appropriate. And the PM did say, Johnson, of course, being the PM at the time, did say, look, no, this is not for you. Um, and, And to his credit, Cummings is also supposed to have said this to Valance, this is not for you to have to defend. But it is quite extraordinary. And you do see there, going back to the theme of the first article we talked about, it's all very well to to have a a round of civil servant bashing. On the other hand, look at the way that the political advisors are trying to uh, manipulate or use or gear the civil service for their own political uh, gain here. Um, Another extraordinary remark was Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, describing Rishi Sunak's Eat Out to Help Out program uh, as a Eat Out to Help Spread COVID program. So, I mean, the, the, the disconnect between the public messaging we're being told at the time, Georgina, as you and I can so vividly remember here in this studio, compared to now what's coming out uh, and the internal communications of the government behind the scenes, is really quite extraordinary. And I say that as somebody who's always been very cognizant of the fact that you don't want to see the sausage made. And sometimes as a journalist, you do get to see that sausage being made. And uh, you are understanding, of course, of the necessary iterations of policy, um, iterations that policy has to go through. But this is uh, next level. Absolutely. And of course, we all stayed at home or away from the office during lockdown. We're back now. uh, And some people say that women are far too much back, that they should be staying at home because they're failing to look after their children. This is a, a right, right-wing right conference that's going on. Yes, and it seems to have attracted half the Australian Parliament, former and current, because there's three former Australian PMs, uh, a whole bunch of the opposition front bench in Australia and too many MPs who are former or whatever to count. So I've been attending this uh, conference. It's called the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. It's a very right-wing gathering hosted by Jordan Peterson, Baroness Philippa Stroud, 
here and uh, and some, I think, Dubai hedge funders. Um, now, they have given centre stage to a Tory MP who's basically considered one of the rising stars of the Red Wall, a woman named Miriam Cates. And she addressed this summit yesterday, Georgina, and it's uh, written up very well in The Telegraph this morning uh, about... The GDP-obsessed economic climate, meaning that mums of toddlers are being forced back or pulled back into the workplace before they can properly toilet train their children. Now, she says this is leading to a scourge, and she's a former teacher, of children being sent to school in nappies. And it's up to then the teachers to deal with this mess uh, (laughs) because parents have not been... Able, and she also does add in willing to go through the necessary hard work of potty training. So that conference certainly took a turn I was not expecting. Um, and that, of course, is the view of Miriam Cates, who advocates, of course, for uh, a more nuclear family arrangement where mums have time to be at home to look after and, and bring up the children, I guess, in her words, properly. Latika, thank you very much indeed. That's Latika Burke there. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu dismissed calls for him to resign over security failures in the October the 7th Hamas attack and ruled out a ceasefire with the militant group as the army intensified ground operations in Gaza. A top Israeli official said aid flows to Gaza are poised to increase as concern mounts over the humanitarian situation. Venezuela's Supreme Justice Tribunal has suspended the results of an opposition presidential primary that took place this month, despite an electoral deal between the government and the opposition that allows each side to choose its candidates. The ruling could risk the wrath of the United States, which this month rolled back sanctions in exchange for the electoral deal. And Indonesia's counter-terrorism unit has arrested 59 suspected militants, including some loyalists of an Islamic State-inspired group suspected of planning to disrupt an upcoming election. Indonesia is the world's most populous Muslim country and it saw a string of Islamist attacks in the years after the September the 11th 2001 attacks on the United States, including bombings on the holiday island of Bali in 2002. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We turn our attention now to the Arctic, a region which, historically, has managed to remain relatively stable and peaceful. But Arctic cooperation has begun to fray since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has shifted the geostrategic balance in the region. Last week at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, world leaders and ambassadors gathered to discuss the key challenges facing Arctic security. Among the conference attendees was Gunnar Wilhelmsson, the mayor of Tromsø and chair of the Arctic Mayor's Forum. He sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller, who began by asking him to describe the unique role held by the forum and what it takes to be the mayor of an Arctic community. I think we are 17 different uh, mayor around nine states. And we will hope to be more members, of course, in the future. And it's special to, to live in the Arctic because we know how to do it. <laughs> we know how to do it. In Brussels, the EU, they don't know. So we had to explain that for them. What kind of things do you find yourself having to explain? What is still not understood about the realities of life in the Arctic? 40% of the EU parliament thinks that there are ice beer in the streets in, in the Arctic. Not the uh, urban uh, cities. 
So that's the big issue for us to tell them how it is to live there and what's the challenge to be in in the Arctic. Because the climate change, we feel it first. Because of the situation, we have uh, the fishery is different 10 years ago, but another way, now we go north to, to Russia. The, that's the part of the climate change. The sea is going to be warmer and the fishery is going east. I mean, you, you mentioned Russia, and that is, I guess, another challenge that has faced you and your fellow Arctic mayors. And I know uh, your city did used to have twin city arrangements with Murmansk, Nadim, Arkhangelsk, uh, which you ended uh, in 2022. Um, before Russia attacked Ukraine in 2022, what was your relationship with Russian towns like? Was it was it actually quite good? Was it friendly? Was it friendly, productive? Yeah, a lot of culture cooperation. Mm. We had the... In, Tromsø International Film Festival had a lot of uh, culture event in Russia, and they come to us. We also the youth had a lot of uh, connecting uh, with the Russian youth, and we have also something we call Barents Secretariat, which is in Kirkenes. Mm. They have a lot, of, so the Norwegian government used a lot of money to have the relationship with the Russian. I mean, do you see that relationship coming back ever, or do you think it's 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 just gone? Yeah, you know, when they in two thousand and nine, maybe they said the Cold War was over. Mm. That was a mistake. If you see the history, you have uh, special uh, leaders in Russia. So that was a wrong decision to say that the the Cold War was over. So I think we have to act different for. Uh, many decades before we can normalize things. But I think the friendships will come back, yes. Mm. Yeah, you know, the, the geopolitical situation is very special. The American embassy have opened an office in Tromsø, outside of Oslo, because of the geopolitics. Uh, Tromsø is the Arctic capital. We have the Arctic uh, council there. So Tromsø is going to be a, a hub but a lot of different things in the Arctic. You're also very close to a border with Russia, which has historically not been a terribly well or indeed at all defended border with Russia. Is that something you think needs to change? I know you've advocated for the Norwegian military to return officer training uh, to the north of Norway, but do you think your region should become more militarised? Should there be a permanent defensive infrastructure on that border? Yeah, I think... I think uh the Norwegian and the Swedish, because the Sweden and Finland go is internato. We're gonna cooperate together with the military. We have the Arctic Maze Forum, political. We have uh, Arctic Five, which is a university, and we also have private sector. So I think uh, the military in the northern part of Norway will use a lot of money uh, to invest to a military activity. I, just one final question then, and I, I should explain that last night here at uh, the um, at this event, there, there was a quiz which the Monocle Radio Foreign Desk team did enter. We did incredibly badly, and one of the questions we got wrong was the one about which Arctic city uh, calls itself the Paris of the North, um, the answer to which... Obviously, you're I know, well aware. I know that. Then, <laughs> <laughs> but just uh, if you would, then where do you see the similarities? How how is Tromsø like Paris? You know, uh, a lot of uh, 
people travel out to Europe and they learn from Paris. The ladies was dressed very well in Tromsø. So the, the ladies in Tromsø for many years ago, they looked like a um, French lady. So that, that's that's where it comes from, the, ver- the very well-dressed women of Tromsø? Yeah, yes. Okay, see, well, we know that now. Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining us. Gunnar Wilhelmsen, the mayor of Tromsø there, in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. You're with Monocle Radio. It's 7.40 here in London, 8.40 in Zurich. Vigilant Defence is an annual major air drill carried out by the United States and South Korea. The exercise, which began yesterday, involves 130 warplanes from both countries to simulate 24-hour wartime operations. Well, John Everard is a former British ambassador to North Korea. He joins me now in the studio. John, where is this drill taking place and what's the purpose? It's taking place in a a number of locations all around South Korea uh, to demonstrate that the air forces, combined air forces of the United States, uh, South Korea, and also Australia, Australia has contributed a a, a fuel tanker to the exercises, can operate anywhere they like and 24 hours a day. What's the purpose? It is to convey to the North Koreans the clear message that if they ever think of attacking the South uh, using conventional weapons, there will be an overwhelming, uh, devastating uh, conventional weapon response. And I mean, this is an annual drill, but would you say that exercises in the region have stepped up in the recent past? Oh, yes. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, we had trilateral exercises with Japan also taking part. Uh, We had nuclear-capable US bombers flying around around the peninsula. Uh, And we've had uh, nuclear submarines visiting uh, South Korean ports, which hasn't happened in in many years. North Korea has put out alarmed and angry statements. It's been watching all this with great care. And we like to think it is getting the message. And can we expect a physical reaction? I mean, don't they normally fire off test rockets at at around about this point? They do. This is one of the strangest things about this year's drill. Last year, by this stage, they had fired, I think, 25 missiles of assorted kinds uh, just to, to show how angry they were at the drills. This year we are two days in and the North Koreans have, they've put out angry statements but they haven't actually fired any missiles in fact they haven't fired any missiles for several weeks now uh, for any reason. This is really quite strange and North Korean watchers are not entirely sure what to make of this. It may be that they've decided that they are going to use these missiles in their trade with Russia that they're selling it to there or chillingly there's another possibility you see a couple of weeks ago the North Korean media put out a statement saying stand by everybody there's going to be a really big announcement and nothing happened now it may be that they are planning something quite spectacular and it's been delayed delayed possibly to coincide with these drills watch this space now you speak of russia and north korea of course has reaffirmed its closeness to russia russia in turn has been hosting a delegation from hamas has pyongyang commented on the israel hamas conflict oh yes uh, pyongyang has come down very firmly on the side of hamas uh, regards israel just as a u.s pawn uh, this is not surprising after all there's a Palestinian embassy in Pyongyang, entirely paid for by the long-suffering North Korean taxpayer, I have to say. Uh, but the the North Koreans have never made any secret that they are pro-Palestinian and anti-Israeli. Uh, and what do we know about North Korea's relationship with with Iran, sponsors of Hamas? 
We know that it's close. We know that there have been many exchanges of delegations, almost certainly some transfer of technology both ways. I, I mean, the Iranians and the North Koreans are good at different things. Uh, and the two sides tend to sing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, if you look at Iranian statements on, for example, the Israeli Hamas conflict uh, alongside North Korean statements, the language tends to be quite similar. So when you say we're, we're watching this space, yeah. do we expect something... Uh, uh, an individual action by Pyongyang or would you imagine now at the state we are in globally uh, that this would be some concerted uh, action taken by those those nations, the so-called axis of evil? Or the axis of resistance they like to call themselves. Uh, I, I don't think we're expecting a coordinated action um, not least because that would require a level of coordination between the capitals that we, we're not sure they could actually achieve. I think it's more likely that North Korea is warning of a unilateral action and the fear is that they are going to attempt a further nuclear test. John, thank you very much indeed. Uh, And that was the former British diplomat, John Everard. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to find out what's going on in the Asia-Pacific region with Monocle's Lillian Fawcett, who joins us from Singapore. Good morning to you, Lillian. Good afternoon, Georgina. Oh, it's afternoon there. Okay. (laughs) We miss you back in the studio here, but it's lovely to speak to you, even if you do correct my times of the day. Now, let's go to your first story. We're talking about uh, Singapore and Malaysia making plans to set up a special economic zone. Uh, Tell us more about that. Yes. So the prime ministers of Singapore and Malaysia met uh, over the weekend on Sunday and Monday for their 10th annual uh, summit, although it was uh, put on hold for a few years over COVID. Uh, Prime ministers Lee Xi'an Long of Singapore and Malaysia's Anwar Ibrahim uh, wrapped up their summit yesterday. Uh, And one of the key takeaways, as you mentioned, was this plan for a so-called special economic zone between uh, Johor, which is Malaysia's southern most state and the city-state of Singapore. Now, these are two countries that are already very close, uh, but it would make it that little bit easier uh, for goods to flow between them. Uh, They're each other's second biggest trading partners after China, uh, but also would make it easier for people to move between Singapore and Malaysia. And there are actually 300,000 people who travel across the Johor Strait. That's the, the strip of water that separates Singapore from Malaysia every day for work and and Malaysians are the biggest group of foreign-born residents in Singapore. Uh, the two, of course, used to be part of the same country. Uh, but actually, what's interesting uh, here is that Malaysia has actually lamented the fact that um, it has a bit of a brain drain into Singapore. Uh, many of its talented and young workers who are seeking opportunities come to the city-state. Uh, meanwhile, Singapore has an aging population. It needs young, talented workers. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that kind of dynamic plays out. Mm. Uh, as this this deal progresses. Uh, Was there any comment on the uh, Israel-Gaza conflict? 
Yes, and that's actually one of the the areas of difference that the two leaders discussed uh, at their summit. Um, I mean, it's not really a a major point of tension between them, but it's definitely a a divergence. Um, They discussed um, how Malaysia, it's a Muslim-majority country, of course, has seen significant protests uh, in the capital Kuala Lumpur. Uh, Prime Minister Anwar has actually spoken, or one of them himself, in support of uh, of the Palestinian cause. Uh, Malaysia doesn't have a, a formal relationship with Israel um, and uh, Prime Minister Anwar has actually criticised what he said was Western pressure to condemn uh, Hamas's attacks on Israel. Uh, Singapore does have a relationship with Israel, but at their press conference at, at the end of their meeting, the leaders were, were keen to reassure that the, the, this difference wouldn't be an issue for them. Mm. Let's move on to Thailand now and their digital wallet scheme, which has been delayed. Yes, that's right. This was a, a flagship policy for Seta Tawisin. He's the uh, newly elected uh, Prime Minister of Thailand. Uh, but the scheme has really been beset by a number of problems ever since it was announced. Um, it's it's being called the Digital Wallet Scheme, as you said. And, and it would see every Thai person over the age of 16 receive 10,000 baht. That's about 380 US dollars straight into their bank account to be spent pretty much however they want. Uh, The idea being to stimulate Thailand's economy, which has been pretty sluggish for for many years now through spending. Uh, There would be some limits on how the money could be spent. There are are plans to uh, make sure that it's going to be spent within a a community. Um, But it's already been delayed by several months months. The plan was to uh, still launch it in the first quarter of 2024. But now one of Tuisen's advisors has said it might not be rolled out until until September of next year. Uh, Fascinating. And and presumably that's paid for by taxes. Well, that's one of the other things that's causing controversy is, you know, there's former ministers, there's even economists in Thailand who are saying that the government needs to be clear on how this is going to be paid for. It might come out of borrowing, uh, but the government haven't laid out their plan just yet. It's expected to cost around the equivalent of 15 billion US dollars. Um, And there are also some details that they need to iron out, for example, um, how it's actually going to work. I mentioned there's going to be some limits on uh, how that money can be spent. Uh, Those are details that are still up in the air. Um, And there has even been some criticism, as I say, from economists with some filing a complaint with Thailand's anti-corruption body. And they've launched their own panel to study the scheme. So it's it's definitely not smooth sailing from, uh, from now on with this. Now let's talk about stinky fruit. Yes, uh, so durian is the famously stinky fruit that's, that is beloved in Southeast Asia, but it does smell bad. It's, it's amazing looking. It's this huge kind of grey, spiky fruit that you can see in markets in Singapore and across Southeast Asia. Uh, there are even signs on buses and trains saying, please don't carry durian with you because it really smells bad. It's going to stink up the train carriage. Uh, however, that is not stopping the international markets uh, from showing a bit more of an interest. So according to HSBC, global demand has soared 400% year on year. Um, There is a rise in the export of Vietnamese durians to the UK, reportedly. Um, But really driving this trend is China. Now, China gets most of its durians from Thailand, uh, but now 
various Southeast Asian countries are competing to supply China. It's, of course, a huge market. Uh, and earlier this month, Malaysian and Chinese officials met to talk about how Malaysia could provide more durian to China. So it's really hotting up. And even in the US, the uh, durian dishes are appearing on menus in some restaurants. So uh, maybe coming to a cafe or restaurant near you in London sometime, Georgina. But really expensive, this this article points out, particularly if you're, if you're exporting it. And presumably that's something to do with, I don't know, what, smell-proofing the container? Quite possibly. I'm not sure, but that's definitely something something to think about. If you can't take it on a train, maybe maybe people have to wear special uh, masks when they fly with it. But uh, I'm sure that's something that's, that will be ironed out by uh, in these talks between Malaysia and China. Uh, have you tasted Dorian fruit? I actually haven't yet, although potentially coming to an episode of The Menu uh, near you soon, uh, there will be a taste test of, of me uh, trying some, some Dorian. Um, just at the Hawker Market near me, in fact, there's a Dorian stand offering lots of different kinds of ways that you can eat Dorian. So uh, maybe that's, I think that's on the cards for me in the next few weeks. Lillian, lovely to speak to you. That's Lillian Fawcett now in Singapore. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code radio 10 to redeem this offer. is an exciting event happening at the Port of Lisbon this evening. The Portuguese newspaper A Mensagem is unveiling a mural to mark the area's historic significance as the only passage and salvation for European refugees fleeing World War II. Well, Caterina Carvalho is the editor-in-chief and founder of uh, Mensagem, the newspaper which is based in Lisbon, and she joins me now. Caterina, many thanks for coming on the programme. This is a story which is centred around the man Roger Cunnan. Who was he? Okay, so hello, Georgina, for the first uh, uh, thing. So Roger Kahn was a, a, a Jewish photographer. He was born in Paris in the 1920s. He was then the, the most important uh, French uh, movie photographer in the, in the 1930s films. And then one day he lost all his family. Uh, we believe they went to Auschwitz. There's no sure sureness about that. And then he came to Lisbon where he spent actually like six or seven weeks, and he did the only pictures there are in Portugal of the refugees from World War II uh, through Lisbon, which was the only, as you said, safe port to and a way out, actually. And what does his work then tell us about Lisbon and what was going on during that time? 
It's an amazing and very sensitive work. He, he pictured the refugees as people, so he showed their faces, you know, and the, the, he didn't dehumanize it, them as, as we now say. That time we didn't, we didn't use these words. And he, he really photographed them in the port, leaving. But this leaving was not always easy, as, as everybody knows. So people had to have a visa. Uh, there was a, 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 a condolence. Uh, uh, I mean, there was a people didn't really uh, wanted uh, people to stay in Portugal. So they had to leave. They had to stay. They, they, they could stay for a few months. And it was not easy for them to go away. But he photographed in a very sensitive way. And this photograph of this lady, which is now a big mural from Vils, the international Portuguese artist, urban artist, is showing a woman who's very sad, sitting on a on a on on on, on her own suitcase near a, a post box, waiting to go away. And you know, she, the the sadness in her shows in his pictures. So that's why it's so important to show them, and especially now that we are living in such a a strange world, right? Mm. So tell us more about how this story is going to be commemorated this evening. Okay, so there's going to be the launching of this, uh, the, I mean, the opening of this uh, work of art, which is facing the river in the exact place where the picture was taken, which was something that we found out. Nobody knew a lot about Roger Khan. His, ma- his name was actually misspelled many times. And then uh, there's going to be the launching of a book, uh, with the investigation of our reporter, Ferreira Fernandes. And there's going to be also a, a, sh- a short movie uh, about all this. So it's, and it's going to be like, a, you know, commemoration, uh, sadder than if it was, if it had been like a few months ago, uh, because the moment is sad for the world now. Uh, but it's going to be a, a commemoration in the port of Lisbon, which, by the way, embraced this. They didn't know this had happened there. And they, when we told them, they embraced the, the, the idea and, uh, and we're going to have a, a, a commemoration, not a, not a feast, not anything like that. But we're going to tell the whole story to the Lisboetas, to the Lisbon people that don't really know this story. They don't know how, how important Lisbon one was, once was in this, ama- in this, in this moment in time in the, in the World War II. About 50,000 people came through Lisbon on the month that Roger Khan was here, uh, October 1940. And why was this important for your newspaper to get behind? Uh-huh. It's very interesting. We are a very small newspaper, kind of a startup. We started two years ago uh, to show the people of Lisbon the stories of Lisbon. We tell a lot about the civic, the civic enterprises of the city, small stories, people mostly, not institutions. And when Ferreira Fernandes, she's a senior reporter, uh, he co-founded Mensagem with me. When he came up with this story, we thought this is there's there's need there's a need for for people to understand what Lisbon is and what Lisbon was and this is a part of what Lisbon is a very important port of a harbor a, a safe haven for people to come and for people to be empathic and for people to understand who I mean, open to the world, actually. So this was what Mensagem saw in this a way of showing the people of Lisbon what Lisbon is. And by the way, the people of everywhere, because I'm here speaking to you, actually. Absolutely. Well, I hope the event goes extremely well this evening. Uh, and thank you for that. Katerina Cavallo speaking to us from Lisbon. And that's all we have time for today. 
thanks to our producers Isabella Jewell and Carlotta Rabello. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Callum McLean. Now don't forget there is a huge rich archive of programmes for you to explore on Monocle Radio uh, and I can tell you that uh, Meet the Writers, our latest uh, edition of that has just gone out uh, and I think that uh, you'll enjoy having a having a look through those as well as many of our other programmes including an upcoming episode of The Menu in which Lillian Fawcett will eat a Dorian fruit. Now, after the headlines, there's more music on the way and the briefing is live at midday in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening. Thank you.